We're going to be reading Galatians 2.20. I'll wait while you guys get there. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray for this passage. I pray that it would be um, Pastor Andrew. He would unlock it for us, Lord, and so we could know it and use it. In Jesus' name, amen. Just leave it there. Just leave it. Don't mute it. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, Clarine, wherever you went, you moved. Oh, there you are. Thank you for the song. Also want to say, Greg and Emily are leaving us after today, right? Back to the DR. We'll hold it against you for a little while. <laughs> we'll, we'll miss you guys and thankful for you guys. And... So be sure to get your goodbyes in to Greg and Emily. Uh, also, as I was thinking there, I mentioned that uh, Sharon and Sister Shirley died. I, it also occurred to me to mention uh, Liz Visser, that her, her grandmother died this week also. That's actually two grandmothers in the last three or four weeks for her. I'm, I'm not seeing her. I see Kurt. She's here somewhere. So if you see her, give her a hug. Be praying for her and, and family. Um, love one another that way. It's a strong church. That's what we're talking about, right? And by now, it's probably on the screen behind me. I see it in front of me, I guess. That strong Christians make strong what? Oh, come on. Strong Christians make strong marriages, right? And strong marriages make a strong family. Man, a strong family makes a what? You got that part. <laughs> uh, so we've spent this, this, this month, most of this month, thinking about, talking about what does a strong marriage look like. Uh, in October is our missions month. Uh, next Sunday, Brent is going to wrap this, this part up about a strong marriage. So I'm sure I want to be here to hear him. Then in November, we'll talk about the strong family. Uh, but we're talking about this morning a strong Marriage, And we've talked about the secret to marriage. The secret to marriage is I die, right? Imagine going to a, a bookstore and the bestseller book on marriage is I die. That should get your attention, huh? That, that the biggest problem to having a God-glorifying marriage is you, your, your sinful, uh, self-centered motives and desires. That, that's the idea that, that we've been bringing out there. We've been calling it the me marriage, right? Marriage is all about me. And then we built on that saying that honestly, dying is the best kind of living because dying to sin and self means Christ in me. And so we explored the power for marriage, right? The staggering truth that Christ lives in me, empowering me and strengthening me to love the unlovable and to forgive the unforgivable and to glorify God no matter what. And so this morning, uh, we're going to talk about 
the heart of marriage, or you could say the essence of marriage, and it's I commit. I commit. To do so, we're going to talk about marriage as a covenant. Covenant is one of those words you only ever hear in a church, really. I guess there are some, like, some financial institutions called Covenant or something like that. Maybe there's even a trucking company called that, as I think about it. Uh, but Covenant. Covenant just simply means a promise, an unbreakable promise, a promise that if you do break it, is on pain of death. That's pretty serious, huh? It kind of ties us back to that the secret to marriage is I die. But Jesus has loved us uh, with this covenant love, this covenant commitment to us, this undying, unbreakable, irrevocable love towards us who have turned from our sin and are trusting in him for our salvation. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones has a, a neat little uh, kid's book, and in her book, she, I love how she talks about a covenant. She calls a covenant God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's pretty good. We see the covenant love of Christ in two ways in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The first way we see it is I want to once again explore our unbreakable union with Christ. We've, we've thought about that for a few weeks now. One more time we're going to think about that, and I hope by now you're seeing how rich and deep and profound but yet practical the doctrine of your union with Christ is. It's staggering uh, to think about. And so I want to ask you, what is your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? And maybe as, as you hear that question, maybe what comes to your mind is as well, you know, I, I'm glad you asked. I, I, my walk with the Lord, my relationship with the Lord has been really strong lately. I've been growing a lot and learning a lot, and I, and I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm growing more in Christ-likeness. Or maybe your response is the opposite of that question, how is your relationship, or what is your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? You might say, well, now that you mention it, that, that's, that's kind of a sore spot. I haven't been doing that great. I've been struggling. But I want you to know that that's actually a, a trick question. I wasn't asking how your relationship is going. I was asking what is your relationship? It's a big difference between the two. If you were to say to me, what is your relationship to Valerie? And you might expect me to say, well, she tried to take me out with a broom a few weeks ago. <laughs> or it's going really good or <clears throat> we've been really busy it's been like two ships passing on the night something along those lines but the answer really I should give if I'm thinking straight and uh, hearing what you're saying is well, my relationship to Valerie is I'm married to her that's my, that's my relationship to Valerie she's my wife and I'm her husband, and this is one of the great things, one of the most stabilizing things that you and I need to grasp. Sometimes we speak about our relationship with Jesus Christ in the, in the manner of someone asks you what, and you answer how. Well, you say, well, my relationship with Jesus is really strong, or it's really weak. It's, it's kind of up and down, but what we need to understand in, in the New Testament, when it speaks about your relationship with Jesus Christ, it is talking about something that is absolutely unchangeable. Unchangeable. 
And part of the undergirding of our lives as Christian believers is however you may be getting on spiritually, however you may take your spiritual temperature, you understand that your relationship to Christ is as rock solid and fixed and unchangeable as the rock of Gibraltar. The words in Galatians 2.20 are, are words not about how well I'm getting along with Jesus as a believer. These are words that describe the reality of my unchanging relationship with my King and my Lord and my Redeemer. I am unchangeably, irreversibly united to Christ. I mean, just, just look at that verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I died with Christ. I rose with Christ. Christ lives in me. Nothing can change that. Amen? Nothing can change that relationship. It is unbreakable. It is irrevocable. It is permanent. It is irreversible. I may or may not have looked up a thesaurus to think about lots of different ways to say how permanent it really is. <laughs> Turn with me quickly to Romans 6.5. I want you to see how Paul says it in another passage in Romans 6. And as I've shared before, uh, Romans chapter 6 is a great parallel uh, to Galatians chapter 2.20. Uh, Paul unpacks the truth of our uh, united relationship with Christ, uh, much more so in Romans 6. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, again, keep your finger in Galatians 2, but Romans chapter 6, verse 5, <clears throat> says, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, have you ever heard the saying, what you don't know can't hurt you. You ever hear that? Or ignorance is bliss. You ever hear that? I'm not sure how true that is in real life. I know that's very much not true biblically. And that what you don't know very much can hurt you spiritually. And that ignorance very much so is not bliss, biblically speaking. That God wants you to know some certain things. And I share that because notice how many times in those verses, Romans 6, 5 through 9, Paul writes things like this. Verse 5, he says, We shall certainly be united. Verse 6, We know. And he goes on in the other verses to say, We believe and we know that. See how certain he is? See what he, see what he knows, that the importance of knowing? I've said to you before, I'll say again this morning, everyone in this room is a theologian. The question is, how good of a theologian are you? Are you a biblical theologian? A theologian just means a studier, a knower of God. 
How well do you know God? Is, is your theology biblical? We cannot be careless or indifferent with doctrine because doctrine directly impacts the way you think and live and act and feel. I've asked you before if you are a big godder or a little godder. Remember that? A little godder is, is, is someone who uh, has all these problems and they're always in trouble and they can't get a hand on anything and God is small and problems are big. A big godder, though, has big problems, but they recognize God is bigger than those problems and he's in control and we can trust him and he's good and he's loving and he's at work. A little godder versus a big godder. Tozer, many, many years ago, wrote a book, and in that book he talked about the most important thing about you is what you think about God and what you know about God, and that's very, very, very true. Theology matters. Christian living depends on Christian learning, and if Satan can keep you biblically ignorant, and he wants to keep you biblically ignorant, if he, if he can do that, if he can pull that off, he can keep you powerless, he can keep you defeated, even though in Christ you're the victor. You see, through the power of the gospel, Satan has been defanged, or you could say he's been disarmed, but Satan wants you to believe that he's still armed and he has a gun pointing at your face, but the reality is this blanks. He can't do anything to you. But he has you so scared and he has you so ignorant of the truth of God that you're powerless and you're living like you're defeated even though you have victory and you're more than a conqueror in Christ. Theology matters. We must study God's Word. We must get a good mental sweat going when you read the Bible. You must think hard over what it says, meditate on it. And we must think hard about what Paul says in verse 6, that we know. And in verse 7 and 8 and 9, that we know, we know. He keeps saying that. What do we know? We know that what is true of Christ is true of us if we are trusting in Him. And so we know that since we are united with Christ in his death, we shall certainly be united with Christ in his resurrection. We know that since Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, we will never die again either. Death has no hold on us. Jesus is indestructible, and by faith you are in Christ, and you are indestructible. You have this permanent, unbreakable, indestructible union with Christ. The, the cross was sin's final move. The resurrection was God's checkmate. And in Christ, we are safe and secure. Sin is forever defeated. Christ is the victor. Death could not hold Christ. Death cannot hold you. That's what Galatians 2.20 is saying when it says, I have been crucified with Christ and I, Christ lives in me. This unbreakable union that Sally, jo, or Sally Lowe joins again says is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's pretty amazing. The commitment Jesus has, the covenant love he has for you and I. But it gets even better. I would draw your attention to the last phrase in Galatians 2.20 where Paul says... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the marvel of the gospel. This is the most stunning truth of the gospel. Jesus loved me. It doesn't get any more profound than that. It doesn't get any more amazing than that. 
Again, that is the heartbeat of the gospel. Jesus loved me. That's what stabilizes you. That's what anchors your Christian life. No matter what happens to me, this I know. Because the Bible tells me so, right? Jesus loves me. It's highlighted all the more when Paul writes, the Son of God loved me. It's not just anybody who loved me, but the second person of the Trinity, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the the head of the church has loved me. If you are a Christian this morning and you've turned from your sin and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were able to say this morning, the Son of God loved me. He loved me. You say, how do you know he loved me? He gave himself for me. How do you know someone loves you in everyday life? Don't we tend to say about moms or dads or people who are serving all the time that, man, you know, you know that he or she really loves you because how they just they give themselves away all the time. They give themselves away. What love that person has, how they, they serve and serve and serve. We identify giving yourself away with a great act of love and selfless service. And here we see in our text that Jesus, the Son of God, loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself away, traveling from town to town, preaching repentance, teaching about the kingdom, healing the lame, the blind, the mutes, and so on. Someone used this mic this week, and it's, it's, it's driving me nuts. It's not fitting my ear properly. <clears throat> this is not unbreakable. <laughs> but Jesus gave himself away in so many ways, but ultimately he gave himself away on the cross, bearing God's wrath for our sin. Think of, think of all that he went through. He was whipped flogged, beaten, spit on, mocked upon, his beard ripped out of his face. The crown of thorns, which I'm telling you, they didn't just gently lay that on his head. It probably had pretty good spikes on it. One and a half to two inches, they guess. Jammed on his head. Then, of course, he's hung on the cross with nails going through his wrists and his, his ankles. But I tell you, it's not the cross that killed him. What killed him is God's wrath, God's just judgment for your sin and mine. That's what killed him. And as horrific as the physical beating was, it doesn't compare to the justice that was rained down on him as our substitute on our behalf. I once heard it illustrated this way. I think I've used this illustration before. Bear with me. But if you can picture yourself standing in front of a massive dam that's 1,000 miles wide and 1,000 miles tall, can you picture that? And you're like 100 feet in front of it. And you're kind of looking at that massive structure, 1,000 miles wide, 1,000 miles tall, holding back countless millions of gallons of water. And as you are looking at that dam, the dam begins to what? Crack. What are you possibly going to do? There is no way. I don't care if you're Hussein Bolt. You're not outrunning that water. 
you're a goner. It's gonna, the deluge of water is going to flood over you and destroy you and kill you. So it cracks, all that water is coming towards you. But just before it hits you, the ground in front of you totally opens up. And all that water goes down in. And not one drop touches you. That's what Christ did on the cross for you. The wrath of God was hot and fierce against you, and rightly so for your sin. And Jesus Christ bore every drop. Oh, the Son of God, he loved me. And he gave himself for me. That's covenant love. That's staggering love. Just death for our sins. Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The Son of God loved me and became a curse for me. And again, those words, me. Remember who Paul was? And if you can't remember who Paul was, just just flip over and, and look at Galatians 1, verses 11 through 14. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. What was your former life in Judaism, Paul? Here it is. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see, Paul was single-handedly doing everything he could to destroy Christianity. And Jesus loved him and gave himself for him. That's amazing love. And the same is true of of you and me. Jesus knows you at your worst. He knows your rebellion. He knows your sin. Uh, He knows all of it. You're not hiding anything from him. He sees it. He sees your thoughts, your desires, your will, your inclinations, your motivations. He knows all of it. And yet he loved you and gave himself for you, O Christian. Are you seeing how this is the most profound uh, a statement in the scriptures, the heartbeat of the gospel? Jesus is not surprised by your sin. Jesus is not like in some relationships where you're maybe dating someone, it's getting serious, and there's still some things about you that you're not quite sure you want to let them know because you're afraid if they find out, the cat's out of the bag, and they're going to run away as fast as they can, Right? It's not like that with the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew you at your worst. He knew your worst imaginable sin. He knew uh, that sin that no one else knows about. He knows about that sin that you're trying to hide, cover the skeleton in your closet. And he loved you and he gave himself for you. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, than than the friend lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us, and it's an unconquerable love. I'm not going to take time to turn there. Put in your notes Romans 8, 35 to 39. If you, if you write in your Bible, write it there. If you write that in your notes, write Romans 8, 35 to 39, and that's where it says, I am convinced that neither life nor death, and Paul goes through that list, all these things that cannot separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. 
This love is unbreakable. This love uh, cannot be dissolved. Uh, This love is rock sure. It is certain. It is stable. It is secure. No matter what, Christ will hold you fast. So you see how Galatians 2.20 brings out the covenant love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This unbreakable union that you have with him by virtue of the fact he's not only your substitute, but he's your federal head, your federal representative. He died on the cross not just for you, but you died with him. This unbreakable union, this unbreakable love. He loved you at your worst. Nothing's going to surprise him. So he loves you forever. 1 Corinthians 13.8, his love is eternal. You see? Now, what's that to do with marriage? A lot. It has a lot to do with marriage. God's plan, God's design for marriages is for marriages to be a permanent relationship. Let me just kind of connect the dot. We, we've said that the heart of the gospel is this covenant love, this unbreakable, in the words of, again, Sally Lloyd-Jones, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, and thus Faithfulness is at the heart of the gospel, and marriage, which is a picture of the gospel, at the heart of it must be faithfulness. That the heart or essence of marriage is I commit, I am faithful, I will love my spouse with an unbreakable love, an unbreakable, never stopping, never giving up love, because this displays the covenant love of Christ for his church. That is the purpose of marriage. That is the meaning. That is the essence of marriage. God is faithful. We know he's faithful through the gospel. Your marriage is a picture of the gospel. You must be faithful so you give the world the right view of the gospel. That's the meaning of marriage. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 24. While you're turning, that gives me a chance to play with the mic a little bit more. (laughs) If you guys really loved me, you'd get rid of this mic and replace it with something else. (laughs) Okay. Genesis 2.24. 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Catch the word leave, right? It literally means forsake. Now, that's not saying when you get married, forsake your mom and dad or your in-laws. It's not saying that. You're still supposed to honor them and love them. But it is saying there's a change in priority, right? But now your priority is your husband and your wife. They come, your husband and your wife comes first before mom and dad. That's what that's saying. Notice also the word hold fast. Your translation might say cleave. Not cleaver, cleave. Cleave. It means firmly joined. Think super glue. Husband and wife stuck on each other inseparably. That's the kind, this, this kind of leaving and cleaving creates, according to Genesis 2.24, 
a one flesh union that is never to be broken. Speaking of thousands of years later, not millions, thousands or even billions, thousands of years later, the Lord Jesus Christ said in Mark 10, verses 8 and 9, the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2:24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God ordains marriages, and marriages are not to be broken. Marriage is to be a permanent union of husband and wife. And what you might not recognize right off the bat is those words, leave and cleave, uh, leave and be stuck together, those are covenant words. That if, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll find again and again and again, God describes his relationship with the people of Israel as leaving and cleaving. He calls upon them constantly, leave the false gods and cleave to me. It's covenant language, strong covenant language. So we see from Genesis 2.24 that marriage is a covenant, marriage is a promise, marriage is a commitment that involves holding fast in sickness and, and what? Health, right? In poverty and what? Come on. Pleasure and what? Pain. Joy or what? Are you remembering your vows? <laughs> Bad times and good times. When circumstances are tough, I do. When relationships are strained, I do. When my spouse is cold and distant, I do. When a job is lost and we're living out of a paper box, I do. In a crisis of health, I do. The loss of a child, I do. When I'm in the hotel room or on a business trip, I do. Whatever the future holds, say it with me. I do. I do. What God has joined together, let no one separate. I know what I hear in the world an awful lot is thinking that goes like this. Well, maybe this won't quite work out and we kind of have a plan B. So-and-so is kind of nice. <clears throat> we have too many arguments. I just don't love you anymore. I hear that one a lot. I think I married the wrong person. We're just not compatible. That's a favorite one. Listen, biblically speaking, there is no plan B when it comes to your marriage. Whatever your backup plan is, burn it. Why? Because covenant commitments is a picture of God's or Christ's covenant commitment to you. Faithfulness is the heart of marriage because faithfulness is the heart of God and faithfulness is the heart of marriage. Turn with me to Ephesians 5.31. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. What you're going to find in Ephesians 5.31 is Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, just like Jesus did in Mark 10. Uh, so again, Ephesians 5.31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That sounds familiar. Verse 32, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see the immediate connection to the gospel? 
When a man and a woman leave and cleave, they are picturing the gospel. They are picturing the covenant love that Christ has for his church. The meaning of marriage is a display of Christ's covenant love for the church. The meaning of marriage is not ultimately your happiness. It's not ultimately your fulfillment. It's not ultimately your pleasure. The meaning of marriage is worship. The meaning of marriage is putting on display the glory and the love and the commitment, the unbreakable union of Christ to his church. Covenant love, covenant marriage displays how deep and wide and the length and the height and the depths of Christ's love for his people. And so therefore, Malachi 2.16 says, God hates divorce. He hates it. Marriage is God's idea. God joined you together. When you divorce... It's breaking not only your covenant union with your spouse, it's putting a break or a false picture of the covenant love Jesus has for his church. You see how that puts it way up here in importance. There are certainly times when we tragically distance ourselves and go cold spiritually, but Christ keeps his covenant love forever. I'm going to say this forcefully. Christ will never leave his church. He will never leave his wife and, or his, I can't say husband because he's married to his wife. He's married to the church. But he would never leave his spouse, neither should you. We must keep our marriage vows in such a way as to tell the truth about the unbreakable covenant love of Christ. Does the Bible ever allow for divorce? Yes. As far as I can tell in my study, it allows it for two reasons, abandonment or adultery. I don't have time to dig into those. I'd love to talk with those one-on-one. But the Bible does permit divorce or allow divorce in the cases of adultery. Uh, You can find that in Matthew Matthew 19 and Matthew 5. In cases of abandonment, you can find that in 1 Corinthians 7. But, But listen, divorce in those cases, even when it's biblically legitimate, should not be easy. It should not be your first, your second, your third, or fourth resort. You must Fight for your marriage. Remember Hosea and Gomer? Remember that story? Hosea and Gomer? God commands the prophet Hosea to marry a woman with a reputation that would make most men run very far away. Hosea 1-2, God says to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom For the land, Israel, commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. The the Lord wants wants a word play here, a word picture, that as, as physical adultery goes, spiritual adultery goes. The connection that's there. So Hosea does that. Hosea goes and and marries Gomer, a wife of whoredom, and they have children, and it's most excruciatingly painful, uh, and it's dramatizing the pain that God feels in his marriage to his people who are forsaking him. But in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, if you're quick, you can turn there. I've got to hear my notes. But in Hosea 2, 14 and 15, God makes this breathtaking promise to Israel, despite Israel's uh, spiritual adultery. He says, Hosea 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Literally in the Hebrew, that's seduce. God is saying about his people Israel, I will seduce her. 
That's what God does with his wayward people. He allures them. He seduces them. He draws them back and seeks to rekindle warmth. Then he goes on to say, I will bring her into the wilderness, which is, if I understand that right, he's saying a place of good memories, of trusting him. Then he says in, in Hosea 2, 14 and 15, that I will speak tenderly to her, which we could say he's going to t- speak to her heart. He's going to speak affectionately to Israel. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, Achor a door of hope. What a God! Israel, God's wife, has hurt him deeply, deserting him, having affairs spiritually with rival after rival after rival, and yet God says, I'll take her back with love and care and and, and affection. I'm going to seduce her. I'm going to bring her back to a place of warmth and trust and a place of hope. That's covenant love, you see? This unbreakable bond, covenant faithfulness, God keeps the door open. He welcomes back. He forgives, even seduces. He does all in his power uh, to bring Israel back. And that's a picture for us in our marriages to do all in our power to rebuild our marriages despite being deeply hurt. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing how covenant love is the heart of marriage? I like to remind couples whenever, whenever I do weddings... I haven't done a ton of them, maybe, I don't know, half a dozen. Probably my second one on, though, I started doing this. I started reminding the couple that when you make your, your vows, that what those are, those are vows or promises of future love. Those are not vows of present love. That can be safely assumed. That you're getting married because you love each other. <laughs> When you make those vows before God and before family and friends at your wedding, that is a vow of future love. It is a promise of future love that no matter what happens, I will continue to love you. Even if you treat me like a gomer, I will continue to love you. The old English had a great way of saying this. They talked about troth. You ever hear that word? Troth. Not what animals eat out of, but a trough. It means faithfulness, loyalty, pledge, that kind of idea. What your marriage needs to survive is trough. Why? Because you have an enemy. You have an enemy who wants to destroy your marriage. You have an enemy who hates your marriage. He hates it because of how it pictures the gospel and the covenant love of Christ and wants to do anything and everything he can to destroy your marriage. I'm not talking about your spouse or maybe family or friends or anything like that. I'm talking about Satan. He hates your marriage. He wants to destroy your marriage. When you give up on your marriage, when you stop fighting for your marriage with a holy stubbornness that says, no matter what, I will not let you go, you're giving Satan a win. That's an ouch, huh? And God knew all this coming in. Uh, in Genesis 2.24, he knew that sin would enter the world. He knew that sin would twist and ruin his good gift of marriage. He knew that many marriages would be filled with trouble because marriages are sinful sinners saying I do to each other. He knew the sacredness of marriage would be attacked and mocked every day on the news and even in our, in our courts and in the press. So before sin ever entered the world, right at the beginning, God teaches marriages for life, marriages 
is a covenant commitment of leaving and cleaving and making a promise to be faithful that no matter what, I will never leave you nor forsake you because that is a picture of Christ on the cross who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? Turn back to Genesis with me. I should have told you to keep your finger there. Genesis 2, this time verse 25. I want to show you for a minute how this, this never giving up, never stopping kind of love, covenant love, changes your marriage. Or troth. Don't you love that word, troth? The troth. Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I used to think when I read that, that that meant, well, yeah, Adam and Eve have perfect, perfect bodies. Of course they're not ashamed, right? But context determines the meaning. First three rules of biblical interpretation are what? Context, 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 right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, follows hard on the heels of Genesis 2, 24. Genesis 2.24 is that covenant commitment of love, right? This begins to unlock verse 25. It's because of the covenant commitment of Adam and Eve to leave and cleave that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed because they knew, because of that covenant love, I'm safe, I'm secure. There's stability here. And therefore, I can be vulnerable with you, I can be intimate with you, and I'm not ashamed. Man, that's beautiful, isn't it? That's the significance of verse 25. Just think about your relationship with God. Why is it so easy to go to God with your troubles? It's easy to go to God with your troubles because you know God is for you and not against you. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation. You know that someone who goes to the cross and takes God's wrath for you is for you. You know that someone who lays down their life for you is for you. This unbreakable love, this unbreakable commitment. And therefore, you feel naked before Christ, but you feel safe and secure before him. Yes? No condemnation. It's to be the same with our marriages. Covenant love says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and that lays the foundation for the husband and wife to be genuine and real with each other without fear of being hurt or snide remarks. Covenant love covers a multitude of flaws and sins. It's a love that creates a safe environment where now your sins can be exposed, but you know you're still loved. You don't have to worry, well, what if they know that about me? What if they find out this about me? You know they've left and they've, cl- they've cleaved so they're for you and not against you. Covenant love allows husband and wife to be accepted and loved for what he or she is without fear of being ashamed. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. And honestly, that's what most of this world calls love. It's love without really being known. They're holding their true selves back and they're putting their best face forward, i.e. social media. Right? Love this version of me. It's not really me. But love this version of me I put out there. It's superficial love. They like the you that you're projecting, but it's not the real you, you see? And so many relationships and marriages are like that out there. But biblical marriages should not be like that. 
So to be loved but not known may be comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved, my word, that's our biggest fear. If someone really knows me and rejects me, that hurts deeply. But to be fully known and truly loved, that's covenant commitment. For your husband or wife to know you at your worst and all your warts and all your uh, troubles and anxieties and all those things and to still say, I do. That's amazing love. And that's based on the love of Christ. Alistair Begg uh, put it this way, and and once I heard him say uh, the covenant promise, that the covenant promise does this, quote, Vows provide walls of protection when threatening emotional winds and waves begin to beat upon the relationship. In other words, the only way to successfully resolve conflict, the only way to weather the storms of your marriage, the waxing and waning of emotions, is for you and your spouse to give 100%, 100% of the time, until death do you part. It's also important because, you ever hear the saying, when you marry someone, you marry three people? That's so true, isn't it? You're marrying the person who's there, so you're marrying, like, the past me, you're marrying the present me, and you're also marrying the future me, and the future me might be very different than the present me. I once heard someone say, I married five different people, and it's all the same person. That's very true. We change, don't we? Sometimes for the better or for the worse. That's why it's part of the vow, for better or for worse, I do. I commit. It's the power of covenant love. Despite our flaws, our sins, our failures, our mistakes, it endures it forgives. It keeps on keeping on. So ten ways to fight for your marriage. We'll bring it to a close this way. I've said a lot. I'm going to hit these quickly. Ten ways to fight for your marriage. Or you could say ten covenant love practices. Ten love challenges for your marriage. Love challenge number one. If you're taking notes, you got to write fast. Pray for your spouse. My goodness, pray for your spouse. When we talk about parenting, I'll emphasize hard that the best kind of parenting you can do is on your knees praying for your kids. It's true as a husband or a wife. The best kind of husband or wife you can be is on your knees praying for your spouse and praying with one another. Pray for your spouse. Pray and pray and pray. Number two. Communicate with your spouse daily. Communicate with your spouse daily. Plan a regular time to talk and to pray. Communicate your thoughts with each other. Communicate your dreams with each other. Ask one another things like this. What can I do as a husband or wife to make you feel more loved? What can I do as a husband or wife to make you feel more respected? What are some things I do that make you not feel very safe or secure? Do I have a tone of voice or actions or attitudes or a look on the face that makes you think this or that, right? Number three, encourage your spouse. Number three, encourage your spouse. Proverbs 31, 31 talks about this godly husband who goes out into, the, into the, the gates of the city and praises his wife. Husband, when's the last time you verbally praised your wife? I say all the time, and I'll say it again, I've never met someone yet, maybe today will be the day, but I've never met someone yet who said to me, I don't need any encouragement, stop encouraging me, 
I don't need that. Get away from me. We all need encouragement. Your husband, your wife needs encouragement, needs your praise. Love challenge number four, appreciate your spouse. Think about and verbalize specific qualities you're thankful for about your wife. If you have a hard time verbalizing them, write a note. Here are ten things I absolutely love about you. Put it on their pillow or somewhere where they'll find it. Put your spouse's needs before your own. Plan a date. Don't take each other for granted. Take a long walk. Hold hands. Say I love you. Unsolicited. That's radical. (laughs) Love challenge number five. Deal with conflict biblically. You will sin against each other. Do you have a sin plan? What's your sin plan? What's your plan for when your spouse sins against you? I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get bitter. I'm going to withdraw. Or is it Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, which is to say deal with conflict biblically and quickly. Don't dwell on it. Don't go to bed angry with your spouse. Deal with it. Talk through it. Love challenge number six, worship together. Worship together. Marriage takes grace. It is only as we are strengthened by God's word we can endure. You do not have power or your own strength to do this. Worship together. Pray together. Read the Bible together. Sing together. If you have kids, they might think you've lost your mind, and it's wonderful. (laughs) Sing with your kids. Confess your sins to each other. Worship at church together. Number seven, carry one another's burdens Carry one another's burdens. You are one flesh. Listen, there is no such thing as his or her problems. Amen? You are one flesh. It's not your problem. It's not my problem. It's our problem. Our problem. So we carry one another's burdens. There's no place for I don't care attitude. And I'm preaching that to myself because I'm pretty sure I said that to my wife a couple times yesterday. Talking about painting our kitchen, like, I don't care. Do what you want. I'm tired of this conversation. How's that for a godly husband? <clears throat> I don't know why I share those things with you. <laughs> Number eight, serve one another. Fold the laundry, do the dishes, help the kids with homework, do grocery shopping. I've seen many marriages killed because the spouse is lazy or lethargic, selfish. Do the dishes. Mow the lawn. Do it joyfully. Love and serve. Give yourself away. He loved me and gave himself for me. Give yourself away. Do you love your spouse? Give yourself away. Here's a good one, too. Do chores together. I don't know why husbands and wives tend to think my wife does that and I do that. Sometimes you got to do that. I get it by time. But it's great if you don't have a lot of time for me time as a husband and wife. Do the chores together. Do the laundry together. Fold it together. Do the dishes together. Talk. Have fun. Splash each other with the water. Tickle each other. Be affectionate towards each other. That's the next one, by the way. Create romantic memories. Some of the best marital advice I was ever given is this. And again, Val and I don't, don't do this perfectly. 
about as a husband and wife that we should every day make sure every day we're touching base somehow and we're doing a lot of these things I just talked about, but that every week we're going on a date together. And you say, well, money's tight. That's great. Have a date at your house. Put, their kids, put your kids in the room or something. Find someone else to watch them for the night and just have dinner together at your table. Have a date. You don't have to go somewhere expensive to have a date. So every day, get together, talk, pray, unload, encourage, praise each other. Also, have a date once a week and once every quarter. Go out for two or three days and enjoy each other. Have fun together. Go on long walks together. Date each other. Care for each other. It's very, very important. Again, maybe say, I can't afford to do that. I don't have the time to do that. I'm telling you, you can't afford not to do that stuff. That marriage is like your car. If you don't keep your car maintained, it does what? Suddenly, it doesn't start one day. It's the same thing with your marriage. You've got to keep it maintained, love and serve and care for one another. Work harder at romance after your marriage than before. Amen? I'm looking at you guys when I say that. <laughs> the wedding is not the finish line. It's the starting line. Be more romantic after the wedding, not before it. Give yourself away. Number 10, enjoy one another sexually. Number 10, enjoy one another sexually. Sex is a good gift from God. Amen? If anything should get an amen, that should get an amen. <clears throat> Sex is a good gift from God. Sex is not a dirty word. Sex is not just for recreation, it is also for recreation. God could have said, no, Adam and Eve, you're not going to like this, this is going to be miserable, but I need this world to be populated, so you've got to go do your thing. He didn't do it that way. God thought sex was so important, he inspired a whole book dedicated to it. Read Song of Solomon, read Proverbs, there's a lot in there about it. You say, what does that have to do with anything you said this morning? It has a lot to do with it. You know when the Bible talks about sex, it uses the word knowing. Adam knew Eve. Which is a way to say uh, that it's very, very intensely personal. So I want to say it this way, that sex is the most powerful, intensely personal expression of covenant commitment. The sex is saying to one another, I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you. You see the connection of that to, to covenant, covenant love? And this is why the Bible forbids sex outside of marriage. It's not because God is anti-sex. It's because God has such a high view of sex that it's reserved for marriage. So husband and wife, love your spouse. Be satisfied with your spouse. Enjoy each other, please each other. The heart of marriage, I commit. We're united to Christ. He loved me and gave himself for me. He's committed to us in every way. He's utterly faithful. Your marriage must reflect that same covenant commitment. Remaining faithful to your imperfect spouse imitates God and brings him glory. Now, all that I've said this morning, and it's been a lot, I know, but all that I've said this morning has not been try harder. I hope no one's hearing that this morning. I feel very compelled to say this. I am not saying try harder. 
That might be true that you need to do that, but that, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you just got to suck it up. What I want is for you to live in the power and presence of the gospel. I want you to see how the gospel is Christ's covenant love and faithful commitment to us, and that that empowers your marriage. That the whole point this morning is faithfulness in marriage comes from the faithfulness of God to you. So I want that to echo in your ears as, as, as you walk out of the room this morning, that faithfulness in marriage flows out of God's faithfulness to you, that the gospel and its power and its presence enables you and strengthens you to be faithful even when your spouse is not being faithful and when your spouse is being difficult and hard to get along with. God is faithful and pours his faithfulness into you as you come to him and trust in him. Marriage is not easy. Conflict abounds. If we are going to just kind of resolve and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, you will fall again and again and again. But it's the faithfulness of God that will get you back up and keep on loving and giving yourself for them because Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. Amen? Amen. I'm going to close us in prayer. To do so, I invite uh, the worship team to to come forward. Before I pray too, I want to mention if, if there are any marriages here that are struggling or hurting, we would love to meet with you and talk with you and come alongside you, pray with you, counsel with you. Uh, that, that's why we're here. We know that marriage is hard. You can get, get stuck in different places. Please don't hesitate to reach out for help. We want your marriage to thrive. That's what the marriage retreat is about also. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for your covenant love towards us, that you loved me at my worst and gave your best for me at my worst. You held nothing back, Father. You emptied heaven of your greatest treasure, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon flesh and died the death of a slave even death on a cross. Oh, Lord, that gospel love, that gospel truth, Lord, flood our souls with it this morning. And may your covenant love towards us compel and strengthen each one of us here to continue on with covenant love towards our spouse. For any marriages that are hurting or struggling or you're ready to give up, Lord, I just pray that you would wrap your arms around them, wrap them with your love, your power, your presence, and strengthen them to keep on uh, in the love that you have, that your love would flow through them powerfully. I thank you that you hold us fast in this way. Lord, I, again, just praise you for each marriage that's here. I thank you for the husbands and wives. Help them to be the husbands and wives you call them to be. I, I thank you for uh, those here who are considering marriage, that they would think much about what they've heard and start the hard work now of being who you call them to be that they would see that marriage doesn't just happen, that they would see that marriage is hard, but they would see that marriage is worth it because of the gift that it is from you. And any who are here who are single, Father, I thank you for them. I thank you for the gift of singleness and how you compel us uh, to use our singleness to love and serve you with, with our utmost being. 
So, Lord, I thank you for Orangeville Baptist Church. Strengthen this church. Help us to have us be strong Christians with strong marriages that lead to strong families so that we can be a strong church that is advancing the glory of your kingdom all across Barrie and Allegan County. It's not about us. It's all about you. Please hallow your name in this way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.